The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning and welcome and invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 with me. You don't have a copy of the Bible. There's one under a chair uh, close by in front of you. We're on page 1015. Taking a detour for a few weeks from Psalms. Uh, we'll be preaching uh, a series of expositional sermons as it relates to the purpose of our church, which came up just a moment ago. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. We we didn't try to come up with something clever. In fact, that's not very clever uh, in how it's stated. But we want to be clear as to why we exist as a church and what it is that God <coughs> has called us to do. It centers around three words, glorify, grow, and go. So the next three weeks, we'll look at each one of those individually. Now, you need to know as members of the church that this afternoon at four o'clock, there's a members meeting where we will be talking about how our purpose as a church is affecting how we're refining our strategy as growth group, uh, how we're doing growth groups, how that's affecting staff, and then we'll present uh, the budget, which begins, the new budget year begins October 1st. We'll present the budget, which will be voted on on Sunday morning, two weeks from now. So hopefully you'll be there and be able to come. So let's turn our attention now for, to how we arrived at the first overarching phrase. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God. So where did that come from? You could say, well, all of the Bible, but particularly what I had in mind is this text. So would you stand as I read? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask now that you would make it clear to us who we are and why you have called us to yourself. May you be glorified in the preaching, receiving, and the response of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So you might have said this morning, I need to get up, we gotta go to church. Here's what happened. The church got up and gathered here. The church is not a place, it's not a building. Even though that's how we often refer to it in this part of the country. The church, as defined in the scripture, is God's people. It's those who have been bought by the blood of Christ who are trusting him for salvation and following him. For these people whom God has put together, he has 
given a clear purpose for why they exist in the world. So if you are a Christian, you are a part of the church and it matters. It matters that you're a part of the church universal. That means the church of all time, everywhere. And it also matters that you're a part of a local church. For this is how God fulfills his mission in local places. What I hope to deal with over the next three weeks is a very individual American mentality when it goes to, about the church. And it goes something like this. The church exists to meet my needs. So I'm going to go to the church that best meets my needs. And when it stops meeting my needs, I'm going to move on. And we even call out that in spiritual language, like God told me to leave. What God told you to do is to glorify him, labor together for growth of believers, and go with the gospel. Now, what you need to do is to get a part of a church that does those things. Now, if there are more than one that does it. But these are the things that God has defined for his church to do. Now, here we're talking about the main overarching purpose to glorify God. To understand it, we got to start in verse 8. As you come to him, a living stone, so his name is not explicit there, it's implied. We're talking about Christ. As you come to Christ, a living stone, rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you are, yourselves are like living stones, are being built up to a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, let me pause right there. Who wrote 1 Peter? Peter. Now, you remember there was an interchange between Jesus and Peter. When Peter clearly confessed that Christ was the son of the living God, and, and he said, literally, you're the stone, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is in Peter's mind right here. He's remembering the moment when Jesus said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church, and I'm going to do it with living stones. Peter, you're one of them. The chief cornerstone, verse 6, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. So the honor is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So here's what's true. Here's what's true of every person in this room. Your life, your heart, your worship, your affection, your purpose, your purpose in life is either oriented to Christ or it is opposed to him. There is no middle ground. So Christ is either the cornerstone or he's a stumbling stone. <clears throat> to be a cornerstone means all of the church is built and attached to Christ. All the living stones are oriented to the precious stone who is Jesus. Now, what is then his purpose for these living stones? First point I want you to see is that the Lord God has redeemed a people for his glory. He says, but you, 
So as opposed to those who have stumbled, who have rejected Christ, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now to understand the word chosen, you gotta go back to verse one of chapter one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So the word elect here and the word chosen are the exact same word in the Hebrew. They're just trans, I mean in the Greek, they're just translated different. So we are the elect race, the chosen race. Race means a common ancestor. Our common ancestor, for those who are in Christ, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we are a chosen of God. We are a chosen race. Our function is that we are royal priesthood. I don't know if you've ever read Hebrews. It's also in the Psalms as well. It says Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. And you probably went, well, I don't know what that means. Melchizedek is a figure that shows up in Genesis who meets Abraham. There are two very distinct things about Melchizedek. He was the king of Salem and he was a priest of the most high God. So when the scripture says Jesus in the order of Melchizedek, it means he held two offices. He was a king or he is a king and he is a priest. Now listen to what the Bible says about us who are followers of Jesus. We're royal priesthood. We're not kings, but we are ambassadors. We are part of the royal family. We are ambassadors of Christ who have a priestly function in the world that we make him known. And then it proceeds to give us a picture of how we live. We're a holy nation, set apart nation, a set apart people who live as unto Christ. We are a people for his own possession. We never lose sight of this. Possession means to acquire with a price. So believers belong to God because they have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The question is, why were we bought? Or how is it that God would do this work? Now we've got to skip part of verse 9 and go to verse 10. Here's what it says. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, if, if, if you know your Bible well, you're going to pick up on something, but this is a little bit obscure, okay? The Jewish background believers would have picked up on it. He's referring to Hosea. Now, Hosea is a prophet. He's toward the end of the Old Testament. Hosea was a prophet that God did something very distinct. He had to marry a woman whom actually a man in Mayberry is named after. Anybody know? Gomer. So you'll always remember now from this point forward that Hosea and Gomer piled. So you got it together. He married Gomer. Gomer was a prostitute. So this is really, very shocking that God would have a, a, a prophet marry the prostitute. It was so that his prophecy was going to reveal that Gomer represented Israel, that they were, they were prostituting the things of God. She had children. The second and third child, God told Hosea to name them very distinct names. I won't give you the Hebrew word, but the daughter's name meant no mercy. The son's name meant 
not my people. So literally in the morning, Hosea would say, no mercy, come here. Not my people, stop that. This was the children's name. Again, they are representing what is happening at this point as God's people had turned away from him. Now, here's what God says to you. Once you were not my people, but now you are my people. Once you had no mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy is synonymous with compassion. It involves God's sympathy with our misery. It also involves the fact that we see that God is withholding from us punishment. Now, he didn't completely withhold his punishment, though. He's merciful toward us in that he took our sin and out of his justice poured it out on his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Now, why would God give us mercy? Here's the simple answer, and I'm not trying to trick your brain here. The reason God gave us mercy is because he's God. It is in his nature. It is who he is. God is love, and God, out of his love, has moved toward sinners. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So from his own will, from his own nature, God had mercy on us. Now, brothers and sisters, this is crucial. I'm, I'm slowing down here on purpose because if you think there's anything that you did to make God move toward you, you are rejecting the mercy of God and you are rejecting what Christ did. Christ did not come to help you. He came to save you. He came to do what you could not do. We are all in a miserable state and in need of Christ. So here's my question. Am I a part of the people of God by the mercy of God? I'm not a part of the people of God because of my goodness or my good works or my family or how I was raised. And I just want to say it loud and emphatic. None of you have always been a Christian. There's not a one of you in this room. There was only one Jesus. There was only one born, the incarnate Son of God, and it wasn't me. We were all born, and by nature, children of wrath. We all were in need of the mercy of God. So my question is, are you a part of the people of God by God's mercy? And let's go back to chapter one and look in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this eruption of praise here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's praising God because according to his great, what? Mercy. He has, what? Caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let me just simply say, I don't have time to preach this in, in its entirety. Your salvation is 100% God-centered. It is because of God, 
It is from God and it is for God that you have been redeemed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. So have you looked to Christ, the evidence of his mercy, of what Christ did on the cross and through the power of the resurrection and repented of your sin and turned to Christ? If you have, then you're a part of the people of God. If you're not, you still are stumbling. Second thing, the Lord God has redeemed a people to proclaim his glory. In the middle of this description of who we are and how we became this is the why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim or declare, as some of your translations may translate it, is active tense. This is something that's ongoing. Not something you occasionally do, something you regularly do. You proclaim the excellencies of God. You're describing who God is, what he has done, that he has called you out of darkness, that is sinfulness or the sphere of evil, into his marvelous light, the domain of righteousness. This is describing the Christian community. The you, I don't know how you've been reading the you so far as I've been going through Peter. The you is not singular in Peter. The you is always plural. So when he says here that you, he's not pointing at us individually, he's saying that you collectively, the church, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God's purpose in redeeming us is not simply our own enjoyment. It is that we might glorify him. We declare the excellencies of God because he alone is infinitely worthy of glory. So our redemption is not ultimately man-centered, Our redemption is God-centered. He has saved us that he might be glorified. Now, I just pause right here. This this is antithetical to the way Christianity is being presented. It's almost like you're you're, you're the only reason Jesus came. You're it. And, And God's pleading with you, please, 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 please accept me. God has redeemed a people for his glory. You say, well, that's arrogant. God redeemed a people for his glory. I don't know if I'm down with that. Okay, I have a question for you. If you think that's arrogant, then who did God redeem people to glorify? Because whoever else you pick is then God. Now that kind of speaks into our modern world. And where we live. The Bible corrects that. It turns our attention where it ought to be. He has, he has brought us out of the domain of darkness into his marvelous light that we would proclaim his glory. So here's my question. Am I joining the people of God to proclaim the glory of God? In Psalm 79, 13, it says, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you from it forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. 
So brothers and sisters, I wanna press in on you for a moment. Maybe someday I can write something that's a little more scholarly and I can prove this better than my life watching. But I'm convinced of what I'm gonna say next. Christianity is dying in America because those who claim to be Christians have gone silent. They've gone silent that started in the community. Then they went silent in their home. And now they are silent in the church. And the next generation is looking at this and going, what's the use of that? Why would anybody waste their time with that? I'm convinced of what I'm going to say next. The issue with kids is not boring, that church is boring. What's issue with kids, because kids see through stuff, is it's not real. We have been redeemed to proclaim him from one generation to the other. This is God's design. This is how God has put things together. And this is on Sundays and the other six days of the week. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to sal for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and for also the Greek. John MacArthur said it this way, Believers have one overarching purpose, that they proclaim the excellencies of Christ. There is no higher privilege than to be a herald of the gospel of Jesus. Now, Peter doesn't stop here. We proclaim Christ with our lips, and now he's gonna press in verse 11 and 12. We proclaim him with our lives. The Lord God has redeemed a people to live for his glory. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's addressing believers. Beloved, urge. This is, this is a strong word here pressing into them in an ongoing way as sojourners and exiles. That means foreigners and temporary residents. You never said this, have you? You ain't from around here, are you? Tells us where you're from when you say it that way. I'll let you think about that later. How do you know somebody's not from around here? The answer is very simple. They're different. They look different. They talk different. They eat different. Their house might look different, or at least the inside of their house looks different. And we conclude from that, you're not from around here. This is an illustration. So God, God is saying to us in his word now, we're to be different. Not weird or goofy, but different. I'd like to say it this way, distinct. And here's how we're distinct. 
We abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against our souls. He's not saying separate. Now this was tried. This is the second reason the church is dying in the West because from the 50s to 60s, we planned church every day. We got together, built big fancy buildings and put bowling alleys and everything in them. So we got people just together and we were saying, we're doing this to reach people. I don't know when I finally woke up and thought, only people around here are Christians. The lost people are out there. They're not knocking themselves out to get in here. So we don't separate from them, but we abstain from what they do that is contrary to the word of God. Now this does one of two things. It either aggravates them to where they then speak against us as evildoers, as if we're doing something wrong, or, or it affects them in a positive way. There's a book written by a man named Larry Hurtado who, who asked the question, why did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? Uh, here's his conclusion. Because Christianity was compelling on two levels. It was compelling in its message the mercy and love of God. And it was compelling because of the people and how they lived. Duh. Brothers and sisters, this is God's design that his people proclaim him with their lips and they proclaim him with their lives. It's compelling. He goes on and Chapter three, verse 15, it says, you better be ready to give a defense of the hope that's in you. You live like this, people are gonna ask you, what's wrong with you? Why are you like this? Brothers and sisters, it used to be said that preachers lived in a glass house. You're fast moving into a post-Christian culture and I wanna submit to you, we all live in a glass house. The world around us is are watching us. They're watching us to see, are you for real? Are you really who you claim to be? It says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And this has confused a lot of people, but here's, here's a baseline of how I see what this means. That the day of the coming of Christ those who have, are not believers are still gonna glorify God and it's gonna go something like this. Yes, you are God and yes, Christianity was true and I saw it in him. I saw it in them. Let me illustrate something that happened to me. Several years ago, I, through a series of things, and I'm gonna be very careful with this illustration, became friends with a fairly notorious individual in Gaston County. Um, he real quickly figured out that I was a Christian, but it took weeks for him to figure out I was a pastor. Actually, somebody sold me out uh, and told him that I was. I've just found that people don't trust preachers, particularly hardcore lost people. They just don't trust preachers at all. 
uh, I just want to show them what it's like to be a Christian around them. But I can still see the day this happened. We were standing in a gravel parking lot, and another guy made a comment about me being a pastor. He walked off, and this dude says to me, you're a preacher? Yes, I am. He said, where do you do your preaching? I said, well, I'm the pastor up at Parkwood. That's on Garrison, across, kind of across from Greer. He cold looks at me. He says, oh, you're the church that helps prostitutes. I was stunned. He never heard of me. Didn't care. But because of his life experience, he knows who the prostitutes are in town and whether we knowingly have ever worked with them or not, here's what he knew. And they knew they could come here and somebody would help them and treat them like a human being. standing in that gravel parking lot with my pagan friend, and he is a pagan. God was glorified. Oh, you're the church that helps prostitutes. So I asked you a question. Am I joining the people of God to live for the glory of God? Philippians 1.27, let me just read it for you. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come to see you or in absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, you learn this in English. When you write a sentence, you don't shift from the personal pronoun to the plural pronoun. But Paul does this in this sentence. He starts out with a personal pronoun, speaking to the individual, and he concludes by speaking plural. It becomes very obvious that you, plural, are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So hear me. None of you can live the Christian life to the glory of God without the people of God. You cannot it has become very easy to roll off people's tongue. Well, I don't really need the church. Yes, you do. I need the church to remind me when I wonder. I need the church to help me when I'm down and discouraged and ready to give up. I need the church to instruct me and to teach me. We need one another. If we're going to stand side by side for the faith of the gospel, to the glory of God. So 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So hear me, hear me. Let me just give you a very practical illustration. You may hate your job with a passion, but I've got a new instruction for you tomorrow morning. What would it be like if you took on that job like a Christian tomorrow 
and did that job to the glory of God. Your boss will probably go, wow, what happened to you? You see, this is how God gets the attention of people in this city through his people. That whatever they do, whatever they do, we do it all to the glory of God. All of it. Now, here's what this last point reminds me. I, I sense the tension in the room. I sense the tension in my own heart. This point brings me back to the first one. I need the mercy of God. I need the grace of God. I need to be oriented to the precious stone. I need to turn my heart and my eyes to Christ. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.